You're listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast, where you'll learn how to earn income, live better, and put your money to work for you. Here's your guide on your path to personal profitability, Eric Rosenberg. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Personal Profitability Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Rosenberg, and today I'm excited to have a very special guest whose name I am not going to butcher, unlike last time, because we talked about before we got on. On the line with me is Jason Vitug, who is, a, um, as far as I'm concerned, a world-renowned author, blogger, speaker, and uh, road tripper. We'll get into all of that as we go forward, but everyone... Say hello to Jason, and Jason, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Great so, to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome. I'm so excited to have you. And uh, Jason, um, like some past guests I, I know through FinCon, and he was a speaker at Ignite, which is a – it's like TED Talks on speed. It's kind of the way I like to think about it. It's a uh, informative talk that is exactly five minutes long to the second, and it's enforced by a – PowerPoint deck that has to be 20 slides on a 15-second auto-advance. And a couple of years ago, Jason was one of the speakers at Ignite, which was a blast. So that's how I really got to know Jason. But he's doing a lot more now and um, some really cool stuff. So before we dive into that, I um, you know I always say personal finance should be fun. It should be personal. It shouldn't always be stuffy. So I'm sitting here with uh, Jason virtually toasting over the internet airwaves. I'm having a Stone IPA. I, um, you know, now that I'm a California local, I got to have a California beer. And Stone is down in uh, San Diego, and I've been to San Diego, but not to the brewery yet. That's on my to-do list. But you know, Arrogant Bastard, I think, has one of the coolest names of any beers out there. But I don't really love the the beer. It's um, it's a little malty for my taste. But the Stone IPA, you know, a little more mellow, but still got that hoppy bite. So that's uh, that's my my pick for the day. What are you drinking on your end, Jason? Aside from my normal um, beer, I actually I'm holding a, a fat tire. Fat tire, that's a good choice. Yeah, a new Belgian fat tire, uh, amber ale to be specific, and and I just love the uh, the bitterness of it, <laughs> and uh, so it has this unique taste, and and so it's it's nice and cold, so it's perfect. Nice cold is yeah. You know, there actually, you know, a funny thing. I, mean, I was just in England a few weeks ago, and a lot of the beers there they don't drink as cold as we do here. They have them. I mean, not quite room temperature, but usually pretty close. Though some they do like a room temperature. It's uh, I I definitely like the American ice cold beer um, version rather than than the warm beer they have over there. <laughs> I, I I agree with you too. And whenever I go, I just I mean I came back from from the Philippines, and it's very hard to keep anything cold uh, out in the uh, the subtropics. So it's like I need a ton of ice to keep it to keep it cold. <laughs> but uh, so whenever I get a chance to drink really cold beer on a, I mean today it's pretty it's pretty hot. So on a hot spring day, it's it's, it's a perfect perfect moment. Now, a funny thing, you know, they um, Coors, which is from Colorado, like I am from Colorado and New Belgium, like like your drinking is from Colorado. They um. They have these taps. They're special taps just for Coors Light that they're shaped like a mountain peak and they're frosty. The tap itself is like cold to the touch. And they uh, they say that the beer should be so cold all the way until it touches your glass. But I actually did a little reading about it and there's a point that it's actually so cold that you can't taste it as well, which is, oh, wow. I guess is just fine for, for Coors Light if, uh, if you're <laughs> in my camp of the uh, craft beer world. 
But um, <laughs> it's a funny little tidbit about uh, about Coors and those taps. And uh, if you're around Denver, you can find them at a lot of places. I don't. I imagine they're elsewhere too. You know, um, I I been to Denver a number of times. I don't think I've ever noticed those caps. So when I'm back there, I, I'm definitely going to check the check them out because I I do like light beer. I think I think you know this about yeah, me. Yeah. So so that's something that that's interesting. But I didn't know that that beer could be too cold. Yeah, there's and, a point that your taste buds don't differentiate all the flavors the same. Which with like a, with a fat tire or, or an IPA, you really want to be able to taste every little aspect of that because it's all made so intentionally. But um, the yeah, Enyaq is light. I don't, it's hard to. Uh, I don't know, it it kind of is what it is, right? So but you're <laughs> yeah, a light beer fan. Exactly, so I don't yeah, want to rag on it too much. <laughs> Everyone has their own taste. That's uh, that that's part of what. That's what keeps all the beer companies in business, and, and there being so many more great ones. So anyway, enough about beer. We'll, we'll keep enjoying our beers together, but we'll talk more about personal finance and your journey and how you leapt into entrepreneurship. Now, you've done I – mean, your site was incredible from the get-go. I know you um, – for those who aren't familiar, Jason's site is called Frugal, and it's spelled with a P-H. So uh, when you're Googling, if you type in Frugal with an F, I don't know, you might find the wrong site, but – Frugal with a PH is Jason's site and a couple of O's in there. And, uh, when I was trying to be clever with, uh, trying to be clever with the name. <laughs> just to make sure I spell it right, could you spell it for everyone so they can type it in if they're uh, wanting to check it out as they're listening along? Yeah, perfect. It's uh, P-H-R-O-O-G-A-L dot com. Yeah. So Frugal, which has a, uh, a totally fun vibe. It's a, there's a lot of question and answer on that site. And that's really a core of what helped it grow. I know it went from zero to thousands, tens of thousands of answers very quickly. Was that your plan when you started the site in the beginning? And was that part of your plan for how to, you know, leap into entrepreneurship using that forum type approach? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. My original plan was to, to help people get access to better information. I mean, simple, easy answers to sometimes complex financial questions. And I thought, what a better way to do that than a forum, but making it so much easier to sift through and, and to find uh, questions that are trending and things like that. So the original idea has evolved and enhanced. So it's uh, what you see now is has been a couple iterations of what it was when it launched back in 2013. And it's going to continue to evolve. I mean, what I love about Frugal, you said it, it's, it started as a platform, uh, a Q&A, and we have 15,000 questions and answers, and it's constantly growing. And we have a very popular blog that's attached to that. But what I love about it is the community. Uh, you're talking about uh, tens of thousands of millennials uh, are on that, searching for answers, adding their questions, sharing information. So that that's how Frugal has evolved. I mean, it, it is about what you said early on, making finance personal. So when you launched the site, did you believe that it was going to be something that you would be able to make a full-time living on? Or did you think this was just going to be a hobby that you could help people out, maybe make a few bucks along the way? What was your what was your thought when you started it and <laughs> launched it in the beginning? I, I, I aim really high for everything I do. I aim very high. And as I saw myself disrupting the, uh, the banking industry, <laughs> the financial services industry by empowering people with info. And, and so just the trajectory, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, I mean, I worked in corporate America. I might have thought 
like in my childhood when I was a teenager, even in college that maybe I would love to own a business, but it's something that I didn't focus on. I went on the, the, this traditional path of going to work for, for someone else in, in the corporate world. And so it's interesting how everything just, just turned out where uh, I had this idea. I was able to execute in the idea. I successfully crowdfunded to help me build the platform. And, but again, my goal was, was to become the source for personal finance information and connect people, not just the content that we create and not just the information that, that people share, but I wanted to be that go-to place where, where we can push people to different information that is created. So curation aspect of it. And, and that's where we're, we're kind of growing into curating some of the best, uh, personal finance bloggers, the best podcasters and, and expanding their reach within this generation. That's a, an amazing goal. And, and a big thanks again from the, uh, from the personal finance community that you include us in, in all, all you do out there on, on your site and your travels. So speaking of travels though, uh, last year and again this year, you did a financial road trip where you've gone from city to city doing talks and, and lectures and try to help people who don't have such a you know, strong background in personal finance. That's something that you know no one's really born with and schools do a horrible, horrible job teaching it if they teach it at all. I mean, I was lucky that I had a middle school teacher teach us how to balance a checkbook, but I think that's pretty rare. Most of us, uh, it's weird to say I was lucky that I had learned how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> it's like something I never thought I'd hear myself saying. But, um, yeah. but you know, there's a lot of people out there who just don't know much about how to deal with their money and Jason's really getting to them through this road trip to, to help them out. How did that idea come about and what has it been like putting it together and living it last year? And what did you learn from that that you're using to shape this year's trip? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the road trip is called the road to financial wellness, which is a grassroots and social media campaign to turn local money discussions into a national conversation on financial well being. And, uh, so I, I came up with the idea because I love traveling. I mean, prior to me starting frugal, I was working in credit unions out in Silicon Valley and I was traveling a lot. And so when I had the opportunity to become a, the CEO, t- basically taking the successor uh, position, I opted to do something completely different. So I said, I'm not going to continue on this path. I'm going to resign. So I resigned, went traveling. I got real, I got hit with the travel bug, uh, hard, hardcore. I know how that feels. <laughs> Once yeah. it bites you, you, you can't <laughs> stop. And what's amazing about that, right? Cause people go, wait, Jason, you've been to like 33 different countries. Don't you get tired of it? I'm like, no, I think the moment you, you go to, you, you visit something completely different, exotic. You learn some, learn some new cultures, maybe pick up a, a few words in a different language, eat some new food, amazing conversations. It's just, there's just so much more to explore. And, and so when I got back in 2013, I mean, I really wanted to travel, but I had this, this entrepreneurial journey, right? I, I, I that was my purpose. I was going to empower our generation, our communities. And, and then like with, with entrepreneurship, it's, it's, it's a roller coaster. I mean, you have your highs and your lows. And, and so I was working 24 hours, pretty much a day. I was working more hours than I was working, uh, when I had a corporate job and I had the six figure salary. And I so know what that feels like, you know, there's a, there's a great saying. It says, um, 
an entrepreneur is someone willing to work 90 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week. <laughs> I, I feel this. I feel that way sometimes. <laughs> I haven't heard that. And that's, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's exactly it. And then, so I, I, I also talk, not only do I talk about personal finance, I talk about lifestyle. I talk about engineering your life, your life in the way that, that you're living your purpose, your, your, uh, creating memories with your friends, your family, your loved ones. And, and so when I know this, I was working 90 hours a week or more on this project and we were making, we were hitting milestones and all that stuff. I was like, something had to change. And so I had to take a step back and, and the road trip became like this conglomeration of my love for, for travel, my love for personal finance, my love for engaging with people. And I said, well, what a better way to talk about money than to go out on the road and just break this last social taboo. And, and that's how it started. And so I had the thought for, for about a year and it was only early last year, 2015, that, that I said, I'm going to commit to this. And what was crazy was that I said, I wanted to do 30 pit stops in 30 days in the month of June back in 2015. And we were successful in holding and participating in 37 events across the country. We drove 10,218 miles. The events were attended by over 8,000 people spread all across, and the events varied. I mean, we had very large events, which were more like festival-like. We had barbecues. We had financial conversations at a bar, restaurant, uh, so what have you. And it was such a great experience that it brought me to to uh, uh, doing it again. Uh, in 2016 and now bigger and better. So I, I, I've been saying to everyone, uh, this is the road trip to, to end all road trips. I mean, the goal is to hit all 50 states. So that includes Alaska and Hawaii and have, uh, one it's hard stop. to drive to Hawaii. I'll just <laughs> throw that one out there. <laughs> it, that's absolutely right. So, uh, we're, we're going to do something pretty clever and fly. Out to that would, that, I guess that would make a lot more sense. So you could, I guess you could drive a car onto a big boat. <laughs> that that is true. I didn't think of that, but I might not be back for for quite <laughs> It'd some take time. Take a couple months, probably round trip. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that was it. It was just so the the road to financial wellness. Yes, we participated in events, and and I went and I talk about the your money mindset, which which really focuses on understanding your relationship with money. Uh, figuring out uh, where is it based from to get you from scarcity to abundance and, and making better mindful decisions on how you spend your cash. Uh, but we also went out and had conversations with people uh, at the local level. We want to ask them about their hopes and dreams, ask them about their financial challenges, and, and, and listen to their concerns uh, about the lack of resources or the inability to find the right products and services that, that helps them uh, achieve financial goals as well as live the dream lifestyle, which I call this my lifestyle. Um, and this year we're, we're in charge of this mission to drive 15,000 miles, another zigzag all across the country, having events at different key locations. In addition to just setting up, uh, little meetups at coffee houses, restaurants, diners, um, uh, all over the country and inviting people to just come and talk to us, uh, share their financial stories, share their wisdom, ask us questions about, uh, what they'd like to, uh, to work on to improve their financial situation. And again, ultimately that whole goal is to help you live your dream lifestyle in this lifetime. 
you know, it's funny. This is happening during political campaign season <laughs> when there when there's a few famous people that are in the news a lot driving around doing the same thing, except they're trying to get something out of people where you're trying to help people. So, so put a twist on that politics. Take that. Maybe you should, <laughs> yeah. maybe you should take a lesson from Jason's book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I steer I steer clear from politics, and, but I, it's actually really quite interesting. I, um, someone that just mentioned if I was going to be uh, in different locations around the country uh, for the conventions, and if I would run into any of the um, the politicians that are running or any of the individuals that that are up for whether you're talking about the the presidency, uh, senators, congressmen, that it would be great to to have conversations with them. And yeah, and talk about financial literacy because you mentioned that when we were kids, we weren't taught about personal finance. And I go out there and I tell everyone, why is it that we're, we're forced to learn how to calculate the circumference of a circle or the area of a triangle, but we don't know how to balance our checkbook. We don't know anything about investing, creating wealth, um, yeah. paying off debt, uh, compound interest. All these little basic things aren't taught to us. And, and so I'm happy that many states have adopted laws that say, okay, well, there's certain amounts of, of financial education credits that a student must go through. But even some of those programs, um, you know, I look at them and I'm like, well, that's not going to inspire anyone to want to learn. And, and, but I mean, it's, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, unlike you, I didn't have the financial conversations with my teachers or with my parents. And my first relationship with money, uh, when I got my first paycheck at this job I worked at, at Newark Airport, I was so excited. And I didn't even know about direct deposit. So I took my check, I ran to the nearest bank on the corner, and I opened up my checking account because I said, okay, to be an adult, I was 18, to be an adult, I needed to have a debit card. Welcome to adulthood with your debit yeah, card. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. And, and then, uh, well, what do you think happened? <laughs> with, you with, overdrafted. Uh, you overdrafted. I paid Boom. more <laughs> overdraft and non-sufficient fund fees than I ever had in a savings account or a checking account. And it's, it was really quite ridiculous. But, I mean, that was my relationship with money. It's just I, I didn't understand how how checking and debit cards and balancing balancing the uh, the you know, the, the cash in there and the debits and credits. I just, I didn't know. And, and it's interesting because when I would vocally tell people this, it's like, Oh, I made a lot of mistakes with banking, uh, with my banking habits and, and I overdraft and, and they'll chuckle and they say, what's wrong with you? And that's when I started thinking, well, yeah, what is wrong with me? But the when thing I, is it's wrong. It's not wrong with you. It's wrong with the system. It's wrong with everybody. Cause when I talk to people about it, Every once in a while, I hear someone chuckle like that. But more often, I hear stories of people who had the same problem. That's why I was able to blurt out and guess, oh, you overdrafted. Because that happened to so many people. It's crazy. Like, you were right. You were saying, like, we know it, like, all this geometry stuff. Like, I know the Pythagorean theorem (laughs) that I learned sophomore year in high school. You can get through, you know, you graduate high school. You need to know that. But you don't need to know what interest how interest works on a credit card. You know, that's, that baffles me. It's crazy. It, it, it is crazy because um, the, the, so here we are when we're kids, when we're teenagers, we dream about being artists, athletes, actors, uh, doctors, lawyers, whatever that may be. So we have all these dreams. Maybe to, I could be a male model. <laughs> I, kill a male I, mean, model. I, I live in the LA area now, right? I could be like the next <laughs> yeah, Eric Zoolander. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> do, do, you, do you have your, uh, 
what, what, what is that? Do you have your um, like my blue steel? Your blue steel look. I, I do an eyebrow, kind of like the Rock. That's my uh, <laughs> my my trademark face. I'm the doing it right look. now. You can't see it, but I'm doing it. My left <laughs> eyebrow's up. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm just I'm, pic- I'm picturing you with your with your eyebrow with your beer in one hand. <laughs> yeah, the beer's in the right hand. My left hand is on my chin. I have my head just cocked a little bit to the right. <laughs> have the eyebrow up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's it is really it is really interesting. Just just how how uh, all the all our hopes and dreams to be something one day is impacted by how we we handle money. It's impacted by the products and services that we use, yet it's very difficult for us to, to openly talk about, about this, right? We are. I, I'm seeing a trend. We're breaking the taboo. And that's part of this road to financial wellness. It's, it's like we're saying, okay, we're going to put it out there and, and people are opening up. And so we're, we're continuing on that mission and listening to people and finding out what they need help on. And relaying that information to the, to the partners, to the nonprofits, to the organizations that have a vested interest in helping local communities uplift themselves economically. So of all the places you drove around last year, you said, you know, 37 stops. Did you have any city that you thought was going to be kind of by reputation, but then you got there and you were totally excited and it blew you away? Um, you know, I, since I'm a quote unquote traveler, I, I look at different cities kind of for their, their uniqueness. So I don't go into a city like, I can't wait to be in this city. Uh, what I can say what's what, and, and you're from Denver and I love Denver. It's a pretty great place. <laughs> it, it is. It is. And I just didn't know that uh, for some reason I kept thinking that Denver was always snowed in. And you know, it doesn't really, that's something a lot of people think. I find people on the coasts are the ones who think Denver gets all this snow, but really Denver's two hours from the snow. You know, the snow comes in the mountains. Yeah, it does snow every few years. It snows, well, it snows every year, but every few years there's one of those big like three foot snowstorms that everyone's stuck for like three or four days at home. But outside of every few years, I mean, usually it snows you know, three, four, five, six inches and it's gone in a couple of days because it's going to be sunny and 80 the next day, even in the winter. So, you know, it's, the weather's crazy there. <laughs> is, is that, that has something to do with like just the, it being surrounded by the mountains and preventing the clouds? It's, I don't um, know. You know, the, I mean, the, the snow really comes more in the mountains because just, you know, mountains, snow there, it's higher up, it's colder there. It's just elevation differences. But Denver is really in the Great Plains, same as, Kansas or um, Nebraska, just Denver being so close to the mountains, there's some other geological impacts. Yeah, the weather doesn't cross the mountains as easy coming from the West Coast. It has to go up and over. So a lot of that snow will fall on the mountains before it even gets to Denver. So if a storm's coming, when I lived in Portland, I'd be on the phone with my dad actually talking about it a lot. I'd say, oh, it's uh, just rained here for uh, three days in a row. I guess it'll snow in Denver in a couple of days. <laughs> um, so that that's usually where the weather patterns come, but most of that gets intercepted by the mountains on the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know what? One other one other place I would think is is snowed in, and it probably is because um, is Missoula, Montana. Um, yeah, did they, it? I think they get a lot of snow up there. Oh yeah, they do. I mean, it's cold is, in the winter in Montana. That's the yeah. So I went this. I, I was there in June, so it was perfect weather. And what, what what's Montana's? Uh, uh, state, um, 
I think tagline, it's like a big skies or um, something like that. Something big sky like that. country. And, yeah. Big sky country. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's beautiful. And I was really impressed too, as well with Missoula, Montana. Um, just, uh, I mean, completely different from, from Denver where Denver just has this, this electricity, uh, like this energy that you, that you, that you get when you're in the city. Uh, it's, it's, well, from what I saw it was clean. The people were friendly. It was very easy to get, you know, get from one place to the other. Uh, very one nice. One of the healthiest walks. cities in the country. One of the, yeah, I, that I learned as well. And I thought that, I thought that was great. And so I never really thought of myself as if I was looking for, um, I've always lived on the coast. So I lived in, in Jersey or in Manhattan and I lived in Palo Alto, uh, in California. So I've always lived on the coast and I never thought of myself. I don't think I could ever live inland. I just like being near beaches. And when I went to Denver, I was like, wow, this is a pretty nice place. Um, and it's, it really is. Uh, close to the lifestyle that, that I enjoy living. And then to bring this back to like money. And then I noticed how expensive Denver, like, like just housing in Denver. It's, it is astronomical. Um, it's been a, it's been a weird journey with the housing prices in Denver, you know, because if you compare to you know, somewhere like Manhattan or Los Angeles or San Francisco, it's dirt cheap, but compared to most of the rest of you know, the center part of the country, other than Chicago, maybe, um, it is one of the more expensive cities. So I always grew up thinking it was really expensive. And then I looked at what it would cost to get the same size apartment in Manhattan. And I was like, what? That's crazy. Like, I couldn't even eat if I, if I had to pay that for rent. But, uh, the, um, so many young people, you know, people you know, around our age have been just attracted to that lifestyle, the, the great outdoors in the um, in the summer, you can go mountain biking and hiking and kayaking and you know pretty much anything you can do outside other than surfing <laughs> you can do in Colorado in the summer. In the winter, you know snowboarding and skiing are are right there around the corner. So it's it's a huge attraction because so many people have come in so fast. You know, construction's going on like crazy there, but it's it's almost impossible to keep up with the demand. So prices just keep going up and up and up and. Uh, that actually helped me make a bunch of money when I sold my condo when I left Denver. So, so thanks to everyone for moving there. And the same thing with Portland. <laughs> I uh, made about twenty percent of my house when we left Portland. We only owned it fourteen months. So, so, so that's right. So you were at Denver, then you moved to Portland, then you moved to LA. Yeah, we're, we're actually in Ventura. So it's about an hour north of LA. It's, um, so, are, so are you telling me that I should go over to Ventura and and buy property because by the time you leave. <laughs> you seem to. You I mean, seem that, to that's what the trend do. seems to be, but I, I don't know <laughs> if I would uh, sink all my money into Ventura property just yet. It's uh, the economy here is it's in, it's interesting. It's very different than anywhere else I've, I've ever lived. It's um, you know, being you know Denver and, and in Boulder for college. There's a lot of tech scene, a lot of startup stuff going on, a lot of new businesses and Fortune 500 companies coming in. Portland has a lot of you know that same thing with startups and new businesses moving there constantly. Um, Ventura, you know, it's, it's more of a sleepy beach town. Uh, so the economy is a little different, but, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to get the lay of the land and figure out where I should, you know, put my bucks to make money on a house. I'll do it. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> but how, how do you, th how do you think of in terms of like you living in these major cities, right? Which is a hub for entrepreneurs, young professionals, people who want to have walkable streets and the cost of living is going up there and, and people already you know, I mean, when I tell people about California, I mean, they're thinking of the cost of living that it is high. So what? Totally. So I'm, I'm kind of like, so you went from like someplace that was 
that like Denver, which attracts so many people and, and it's just growing exponentially to Portland, which is attracting so many people and, and is growing exponentially to Ventura. Was it, was it like, you know, was that finance probably like a, a big factor of that? And, and I mean, considering it is California, you're talking that it's a beach town that, uh, it's interesting. Well, money was definitely something we had, to, had to factor in. And in Portland, I was living in a, beautiful four bedroom house. And now I'm in a two bedroom apartment that costs $300 more per month than my mortgage was. So, so it is way more expensive living here, but the biggest draw for us is where we're about 20 minutes away from my in-laws. And, uh, and we had a baby, she's now seven months old and beautiful and amazing. If I do say so myself, <laughs> but she's, uh, she is. but she's, um, and we, it, everything changes when you have kids and you, ex- I expected that going into it and I knew things were going to change. And we knew when we moved to Portland, we said, well, we don't know if this is really going to be our forever home. It might be if it works out great. But um, if not, we weren't going to be too disappointed. And we had a great experience. I absolutely loved living there and, and still have some amazing friends there. But when you have a kid being closer to family, there's um, there's a huge value. And, and even you could argue financial value if, if you take into account maybe babysitting and, and daycare that um, – if you can drop, we, we're not doing this at this point, but if you could drop your kid off with your, with the grandparents instead of at daycare, they're with family and it saves you, you know, a bundle, you know, thousands of dollars a month in some situations. So, um, there's definitely some benefits to being close to family, but family lived in, in, uh, Santa Barbara County, which is one of the most expensive parts of one of the most expensive states. So we just had to bite the bullet on the cost and move into a smaller place, but. Then I'm also looking outside and it's a beautiful blue sunny skies pretty much every day and five minutes walk from my front door. I'm, I'm in the sand. So, so there's some, you, you get what you pay for and here you pay for the beach and you get it. So <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, uh, when I, when I was living in, um, in Silicon Valley, it was the same thing in terms of like the, the, the cost of living. And we're talking about from like 2009 to 2011 or like January of 2012. I mean, Every year it was exponentially exploding there. It's crazy. Yeah, it was exploding. And so, and then I go and I leave and, and I come back and, and then I'm like, wow, what happened in a year? <laughs> and I'm and reading so, stories about, uh, I was reading a story about a Google senior software engineer. Like you know, these guys, they're not paid like $40,000 a year. These are very well paid people living in trailer parks because that's all they can afford in, uh, in Palo Alto and, and, uh, San Jose. It's, yep. it's nuts. Yep. People are renting their garages and I know people and friends who have lived in a garage and you're talking about probably at most a hundred square feet and they're paying a thousand, eleven hundred dollars for that garage and like a makeshift little kitchenette. It's maybe they need to get into the tiny houses down there. They, yeah, they probably they probably should. They're probably and down there already, and I just don't know. Or yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too, and I'm like, I don't even know where they they could place them. But uh, uh, I mean, land is 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 at a high premium over in the Bay Area. But that's kind of one of my decisions too, though, to leave was like, okay, well, let me let me move back to Jersey. I mean, Jersey's tech scene um, is much it's much uh, smaller smaller. Um, it's kind of growing. And so kind of getting into that, into the beginning of it is, is great for me, just making the, the connections with people who are making things happen, uh, in the state. But also it was a financial, financial decision because I could save a ton more just not, not just on 
renting an apartment, but uh, everything else aside from insurance, because New Jersey car insurance is is horrendous <laughs> in terms of like one of the most expensive. But everything else, it, it is definitely more affordable than than California, and that has allowed me to continue on this path. You know, this entrepreneurial path where it's like zigzagging and twists and turns, and you never really know um, how things are going to pan out. You just have to to stay consistent and persistent on there but um kind of stepping stepping back a, a couple a couple of steps uh, when you when you said that you made a decision to move out to Ventura to be closer to your in-laws you know and it was a financial decision as well what's interesting about that is you know um I mean I don't have a child I'm not in a serious relationship so this allows me to kind of do the road trip <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and, like, so it'd, be, it'd be hard months. for me to get away Our, we drew, it would just the drive from Portland to here when we moved was uh we had to bring my mom along for the ride. Otherwise, it would not have been doable with the baby. It's uh, she does. You know, a lot of kids fall asleep right when you put them in the car seat. Yeah, I have a blessing in all ways with my baby, except that one. When we put her in the car seat, she goes on high volume mode, and she is not happy. <laughs> she lets us know. <laughs> she, yeah, she wants you to make sure that you know she's back there. <laughs> exactly, and not happy to be back there. She would rather be held. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's uh. There are some benefit. There are some you know other community benefits though to our location. You know, I'm. It's about an hour drive from here to L.A. without traffic. I mean, with traffic, it's uh, it's L.A. traffic, so it could be. Oh, I don't yeah. know about thirty six hours or so. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I you know there was a, a personal finance blogger meetup in Long Beach, which is you know southern part of L.A. Just a couple weeks ago, and I thought you know what I can I can suck it up and drive down, and I actually left. Uh, just after morning rush hour, thanks to the entrepreneur flexible schedule. And um, I set up shop in a, in a nice coffee shop in Hollywood, actually West Hollywood, for, for an afternoon. Um, I, you know, I, I did some good work, grabbed a good lunch because uh, everywhere I've lived so far, finding kosher meat is very difficult. And I only eat kosher meat for religious reasons. LA, lots of Jewish people, easy to find kosher restaurants. So I had a good burger, hopped back in the car, drove down to Long Beach, had a beer at a brewery while I was working about a block from where the meetup was. At meetup time, I packed up, walked over, hung out with some great people. And then when that ended, no traffic for the drive home. So just about an hour or so drive back. So th- we are close enough that with the entrepreneur schedule, I can make things like that work. And and, and that's awesome. The flexibility, right? That, totally, that's, yeah. yeah. With, the, with, my, with the old, you know, I'd say nine to five, but it was really more like eight to six or some days longer. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, you, there was no way to do anything like that. So, uh, or, or live in a place like this because, you know, big companies aren't, uh, aren't in a lot of small towns. So having that, yeah. having an entrepreneur's lifestyle, yeah, you, there are some sacrifices. You, you pay more for health insurance, things like that. But on the flip side of that coin, I get to live on the beach and, and, uh, <laughs> and be by family. And that, that's all good. No, that, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, like um, when we talked about entrepreneurship, right? It, it was, Okay, you can work a ton of hours, but the the beauty of entrepreneurship and what I love about it is that my ability to focus on what matters. Like uh, totally. someone is someone is not telling me what I need to focus on or what project I should be working. There's on. no busy work in entrepreneurship. There's no, absolutely, because like you know, I think this being an entrepreneur has made me realize that time is money. I mean, even being a senior executive, I knew time was money. 
but there's just so much, there is so much busy work. There is a lot of meetings and a lot of phone calls and, and there's and, so much on appearances too. Like if, yes. if I were really, really good at my job and was able to get everything done in say 35 hours, could I take off a couple hours early for a few days? I mean, maybe on a Friday every, you know, every couple of weeks, but generally no, you just have to be there and look like you're really busy, even if you're not. And on the other side of the coin, if you're like super crazy busy, you don't get extra credit for it. You just have to be there longer. So, um, you know, know, there is some puts and takes. Things do come out in the wash, you know, salaries. So, um, you know, if I had to go to a doctor appointment or do something because my baby was having a doctor appointment, my boss wasn't like, oh, you have to clock out or take hours off or something like that. But, you know, there is that thing of you have to look like you are there working harder than anyone else. And um, whether or not you are more effective than anyone else doesn't come into account a lot of the time, which is a uh, a thing I think corporate America could learn from a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley companies have taken a lot of a different approach on that, which I appreciate. And I hope that uh, trend drips out into the older, bigger companies. But um, yeah, it's crazy to think like you just have to look like you're sitting there working hard. <laughs> and uh, that is really what gets you a promotion. It doesn't matter if you're actually like saving the company a bunch of money or making the company a bunch of money that that goes less noticed it, it does and, and what's interesting is that uh, there was a study that came out that that showed millennials are willing to take um, a pay cut in order to work on uh to work with a company or to work in, on like in projects or on projects that are more purposeful and that that uh, align with with what they what they believe uh, is valuable and impactful, and I, I think that is that is interesting. And companies are taking note because it isn't about FaceTime to kind of our generation. And I'm talking like even like the younger generation uh, part of this millennials because millennials right now you're looking at twenty to thirty six, twenty two to thirty six, and the ones that are just right out of college they're a bit different in ta- in terms of mentality. Yeah, they know how to use Snapchat, and I can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had Snapchat for some time, but just been actively using it this past year. So it is just one of those things. I'm like, wait, I just got to press corners or boxes and boxes with circles in them. But she'll and figure out how to make myself vomit a uh, rainbow I, or that, something. I've not figured that out yet. I've I saw my sister do it, so I know it's possible, but I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, I've been on it for years just because my sister was on it to see what she sends me. But then I was, I was like, oh, you can send like little videos. That's cool. I was at a wedding last year in New York and, uh, we were up on a really, really high floor on a rooftop balcony at a hotel, like 50 floors up, something like that. And I was like, oh, I should make one of those little Snapchat videos. And I had to find the, uh, the 14 year old, um, daughter of someone to be like, hey, how do I uh, do a video on Snapchat? <laughs> I felt like that was the first time I like legit. Like, I would joke, "Oh yeah, I'm old." No, that time I really felt old that I had to find a 14 year old to tell me how my phone works. <laughs> and I'm I'm like a tech guy. I know how to code. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, anyway, um, you know, so we we have a uh, you know, about a little over five minutes left. So I wanted to I want to shift gears. I know you just finished a book, and um, I want to talk a little bit about the genesis of that book. I know you'd. Um, written, I, I think it was on your blog or somewhere you wrote something prolific that I read that you had noticed, even though you have reached, you know, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people from your website and your tour and everything you've done, a lot of, you know, businesses and companies, you know, conferences wouldn't take you seriously until you'd written a book. 
And that's <laughs> something I haven't just heard from you. I've heard it a lot of places. And I've written a, a small ebook, but I'm thinking I might have to uh, jump on the bandwagon and write an actual good book at some point. But before I do, I'm, I'm curious, how did, how did that genesis come to be that you've, you found and felt that way? And um, let's start with that, talking about the book. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I've, I've uh, for a few years now, I've wanted to write a book, uh, but not necessarily know, uh, not necessarily decided on what specific topic. I, I said to myself, "Oh, I want to write about my backpacking trip that I that I did in 2012." And but then when I went through the road to financial wellness and completed that, and and as I was speaking with people, they loved the message, they loved the seminar, the talks, the Q and A, what, what have you, and they would ask me for more information. I was like, well, my info is in a blog or I have some workbooks or seminars and they were all looking for books. And eventually when I was reaching out to press to kind of promote the road, road tour, uh, I was told I was not an authority unless I was an author. And so that, that, that made me think for a second. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I've written hundreds of blog posts, um, met with thousands and tens of thousands that you mentioned of people. And, but I'm not an authority in this subject matter. That's and so crazy. That, it, it is that the media, the media needs to get with the times. That's why, that's why all these newspapers are closing because they're so out of touch. They don't get that, uh, you know, talks to of millennials and then, you know, the generations after they don't care about a paper newspaper or a paper book the same way as, uh, you know, as our, forefathers did but uh, it, that's a whole it, nother rant for another day <laughs> yeah no you're right and and so there is there is a generational divide in terms of what how do you consider someone an authority um because in that context even being a, a social influencer on twitter on facebook instagram doesn't qualify you as as an authority i think and specifically about the subject uh, on personal finance and so i said to myself after the road trip i wanted to self-publish a book Specifically talking about the, the main concerns that people had or how you can get yourself on the road to financial wellness. And as I was writing that, I shared it uh, as I share many things on Facebook and someone who has become a dear friend of mine for, for the past few years, who's been following my journey, has been loving the messages that I've been, I've been sharing and the content that I've been creating, uh, sent me a Facebook message and said, my son works at Wiley. So you want to get published? <laughs> and, and so with that, like a few minutes later, I had an email with copying her son and introducing me. And, uh, so had a really short conversation just via email. And then two weeks later, I finally got a response from someone in corporate in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, they wanted to learn more. And so I had a very short conversation with them over the phone. They asked me to fill out two, two pages filled it out and they, they wanted, they asked me another follow-up question. And then eventually they said, well, we'd like to meet with you. And I drove that day. They, they asked, uh, went up to Hoboken, had lunch with my editor. And that afternoon I was offered a book deal. Um, it was a very quick process. Uh, and I really didn't know I wasn't navigating. So I didn't find, I didn't go searching for a literary agent. I didn't go create a, a marketing plan or, or research for the book. I mean, they did their due diligence uh, in terms of thinking, looking at what happened in the road trip, who, like, who is my audience comprised of, and also the outline. So I did provide them like a very basic outline of what I wanted to write the book on. 
And with that, they were compelled. And so when I sent in my first draft of the book last year, I was really nervous because I didn't know what to say. And I remember they, they assigned a developmental, developmental editor or, or development editor. And then she was, uh, her first reply back to me was, your story is very interesting and engaging, but, and she had a list, like a page long. I hate the but. Yeah. But it was, anytime an editor says, but. But it was, it was perfectly like the the way it was written. And, and I had to step out, like, uh, out of my room because, you know, when, when someone criticizes you or or they find uh, feedback and it's like a page long, it's overwhelming. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. I did because it's like, I'm, I'm talking about my personal experiences. I'm talking about the experiences of people that I'm, I'm invested in, in their success. So yeah. But then she helped me craft a book that was, that I think was better than what I had originally thought. And it went through this whole process. I mean, Wiley has been amazing. You're, you're talking about the assigned like eight people is in my team from, from my editor to the developmental, the copy editor, the typeset, the PR. It's, it's been crazy. It's been a whirlwind. And they believe that the, the message or the content that I've written, uh, on the book resonates with with our generation resonates with with across generations actually and and they feel that that um you know when we're when we when we talk about money we don't really talk about what money is used for in the sense of creating a life worth living a life worth sharing with others a purposeful life and that's how I got to the title of the book, which is You Only Live Once, The Roadmap to Financial Wellness and a Purposeful Life. Because at the end of the day, it really isn't about the size of your bank account if there's no purpose to why you you need X amount of dollars in that in that uh, bank account. And, and so I focus a lot of my attention on mindset, on financial awareness, as well as self-awareness. So a good bulk of the book is about um, uh, increasing your awareness, being more mindful of what it is that you want, where you're starting from, gaining clarity of what you truly value before you set financial goals. And I think this is big, and, and we talked about this, I think many people set financial goals without understanding what they truly value. And I remember when people told me I needed to own a house, I needed to buy a house, and I would feel satisfied and happy and I realize what, well, what I value is experiences, is memories, you know, traveling around the world. And so instead of me jumping in and getting a mortgage, I decided to take that money, pay off the remainder of my debt and use the rest to, to backpack around the world for a year. And that has led me to where I am today. And so that's why purpose is a really big component of a book on personal finance for me. That's great. I think a lot of people can relate to that that same feeling of I'd rather have experiences and memories and uh and good times with friends over things because things things come and go, but those memories they're they're with you forever and um definitely make life a lot more interesting and worth living. Totally agree. Ab- absolutely. I mean things too, right? Things are great. Things add value to our lives. So it's not about saying you can't have this you can't have that big house. You can't have this fancy car because everything has a cost, whether exactly. it's experiences or things. They all have a cost. There, there's, it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. 
But what's really important is understanding what truly matters to you. And, and that is, that is taking away all the marketing that, that we've been, that's been pushed down our throats to take out even this, this influence among, amongst our friends and our networks and what is a priority. And so that's what I challenge readers, uh, in the book is, is to get a better understanding of what they truly value and have these meaningful conversations with people that, that share those values because it's going to push you forward. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, so now we're just about out of time. So if, okay. if someone wants to go find your book, uh, what, what's the release date? Where should they find it? So the book, I'll repeat again, <laughs> You Only Live Once, The Roadmap to Financial Wellness and a Purposeful Life. It is available at all major retailers. So you're looking at Barnes and Nobles, uh, Amazon, and, and independent booksellers throughout the country. And there's also a Kindle version. So you can get the hardcover as well as the Kindle version for the book. It's available starting June 7th. Excellent. And if people want to connect with you personally on the social media world or, or on your website, where's the best places to go find you? Yeah, the best place to uh, to go find me is through Twitter. So at Jason Vitug, uh, that's the best place to, uh, to engage with me. And I'm, I'm in all the social networks, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, so you can find my name, Jason Vitug, and also follow at Frugal, so where we focus a lot on the personal finance and the lifestyle aspect as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to sit down and have a uh, have a virtual ch- toast with me across the internet airwaves. Uh, it was great <laughs> chatting with you as always, Jason, and uh, wishing you the greatest luck in your. Uh, you don't need luck because you already have good planning, and planning trumps luck any day. So. Uh, Wishing you much success in your in your upcoming um, second annual book tour and uh, or second annual tour and book launch. You have so much going on. I'm just jumbling it all together now. And uh, well, anyway, my beer is about empty, so uh, so I'm gonna lift it up and say cheers to the, to the listeners who made it all this way to the end. To Jason for being here with me. Um, again, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, if you have any more questions for Jason, want to check out his book, want to connect with him, again, that's Frugal, P-H-R-O-O-G-A-L. Did I spell that right? Absolutely. Frugal.com or on Twitter or uh, at Jason Vitug. So thanks, everyone, for being a part of it. As always, until next time, stay profitable. Thanks for listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes or share it with a friend.